Hello, and welcome to this special edition of MLB Morning Coffee. This is your host, Greg Moraz, coming to you from the Ocean Avenue Studios in San Francisco, California. Because Major League Baseball is on hold due to the coronavirus, and there's really not a whole lot of news to report other than injuries, we've decided to go into a 30-part series. What 30-part series might you ask? Well, a 30-part series that gives the top 10 players of every Major League Baseball franchise. The second in our 30-part series is the top 10 Chicago Cubs of all time. One of the reasons why I wanted to do the Cubs is that the Cubs, despite having a period of 108 years without winning a World Series, had some nationally relevant players from their early stages in the 1800s to the present day. The Chicago Cubs are a franchise that came so close so often, but didn't get over the top until 2016. But still, for a franchise that plays in the third largest city in the country, they have one of the most loyal fan bases and some of the most iconic players. Joining me to give his list of the top 10 Chicago Cubs of all time is Idaho Falls Chuckers assistant general manager, Rockford, Illinois native, and lifelong Chicago Cubs fan, my former roommate, Josh Michelson. Josh, appreciate you taking the time, and welcome to the coffee shop, as I'm going to start calling our interview sessions. Greg, thanks for finally having me on. I've been listening here almost every day, and I'm excited to finally take part in one of your podcasts. See, it had to be something on the Cubs, though. That's what I have been... That's what I've been trying to make the argument to. I'm like, I want to bring somebody on that's as relevant to every team as possible. And for as much as you love the Royals, the parent club of the Chuckers, your employer, every time that I'd see you outside of work, you'd be watching a Cubs game. You're as big of a Cub fan as I know. And that's why I wanted to have you on today to discuss. So before we give our honorable mentions, then moving into the top 10, I want to ask you this simple question. When you look at the Cubs, over their franchise's history, despite the fact, as I said in the intro, that they didn't get over the top, you know, what sticks out to you about the success of some of the individuals of this franchise? Because there were a lot of players that had big impacts, but maybe not for very long. Yeah, I mean, just like I had texted you before we got started, I think you could almost make a a case for guys from, you know, present day through 2010. I think that was a big era in Cubs history with obviously the World Series and you know, Theo kind of taking, taking the realms and the, uh, you know, four or five straight years of them with great draft picks, which ultimately, you know, led to that World Series in 2016. And, you know, I then you go from 2009 through 2000, and, you know, that was a, a big part in Cubs history as well. You know, they had basically, you could break that into two different eras if you wanted to. In the early part, you know, you had your Kerry Woods and Mark Priors and Steve Bartman and, and all that crazy stuff. And then on the back half, you know, they won, made the playoffs two years in a row and then they got swept that second year, I believe, by the Dodgers. Um, I don't remember who they played the year before that, but, um, you know, it was can, also the Dodgers, both Dodgers. And so you can break that into to almost two different eras. And then, you know, me growing up in the 90s, I mean, I remember going to my first Cub game with my dad at Wrigley Field and, you know, Sean Dunstan pulled up in his red Porsche and rolled down his window and signed my baseball for me. And it'll be a, a moment I'll never forget. And I actually met him, uh, Ryan Sandberg, who will be part of my list. I don't want to go too far ahead of ourselves here. And uh, Cubs great center fielder and left fielder, Brian McRae. I think that we all have those moments that really endeared us as baseball fans. And that's what I think is so special about one's fandom to their own team. And the Cubs had a lot of guys that were really, really likable. And this is where I want to transition into my honorable mention. I put Chris Bryant and Anthony Rizzo, along with a guy like Jake Arrieta, into an honorable mention because, first off, Arrieta is no longer with the Cubs, and his biggest impact is going to happen in the three main years, 15, 16, and 17, where he was a part of that Cubs team and made the biggest impact. Bryant and Rizzo, they had their big impacts on the World Series here, but their story, at least a lot of it, is still yet to be written, and that's why I don't think you can necessarily put them as all-time Cubs at this point. It was interesting. I had on Mark Rivera to talk our top 10 San Francisco Giants yesterday, and we were able to put a couple of modern-era players on there, Buster Posey and Madison Bumgarner, because those guys all won three World Series. 
you know, the story is not written yet, at least in its finality, for the Cubs. A couple other guys that I think are worth putting on my honorable mention list are two pitchers that you brought up to me, Kerry Wood and Mark Pryor. I think the longevity of Kerry Wood is a much better career than Mark Pryor's was. Now, Pryor, when he was at his best, was an elite starting pitcher and a huge part of that 2003 Cubs team that came just a Steve Bartman away from making it to the World Series. But Kerry Wood had the 20 strikeout game, and in the late 90s and early 2000s, if he had stayed healthy, he potentially could have had a Hall of Fame career. And then one other guy that I want to put on an honorable mention, and a lot of people have him inside their top 10. I don't, and it's simply for the reason because he only played four years with the Cubs. But Rogers Hornsby and his 1929 season may have been one of the best years that any Cub has ever had and ever will have. He played 156 games in 1929, hit 39 homers, drove in 149 runs, hit 380 with a 459 on base percentage, and Hornsby won his second MVP award. I, I think he is the only guy to win an MVP with the Cubs and the Cardinals. He's mostly known as a St. Louis Cardinal, but that season alone puts Hornsby on my honorable mention list. Well, in his first year with the Cubs, too, I mean, that was one of his better, you know, seasons as a big leaguer. But, I mean, I agree with you on all those other ones you talked about. Kerry Wood, Mark Pryor, you know, that was probably, besides the kind of the last two, three years of Michael Jordan, that was really my big first sports, you know, that, that was a big deal. I, you know, being a Bulls fan, um, the early ones you don't remember, but, um, you know, being seven, eight, six years old in that time frame, um, you know, it wasn't really, I guess, as special as it, you know, 2016 was obviously, a, you know, I'd been through, you know, 25 plus years of life and working in baseball and, you know, just being there through all the heartache and, and everything else where, you know, obviously that that's meant the most, but that was probably my first big time in my sports life where, that, that was a huge deal. I mean, when Alex Gonzalez made that error, and I'll still go ahead and, and blame that on him versus Steve Bartman. Don't get me wrong. As being a Cubs fan, I, you know, you have to put a little bit of that on, on Bartman making that catch. But, you know, there's a whole bunch of other stuff that comes into play. And, and that was, you know, I remember getting Mark Pryor's autograph when we were up in Miller Park. This little girl in front of me dropped her ball, and he reached to grab hers and grab mine instead. And I was calling everybody that day. I was standing up at the top of Miller Park. It was like, maybe two, three years after it opened uh, with my, I don't remember who I was with that day. Uh, maybe my dad, but um, yeah, I just remember calling my mom and calling my grandpa and like, Hey, you'll never guess what just happened. I just got Mark Pryor's autograph and even meeting Kerry Wood at Wrigley field um, that year that he had his 20 strikeouts. Uh, I remember my dad called me after that and I had just gotten a new glove that year. And I actually have the exact same glove that Kerry Wood, uh, the A2000, that kind of reddish brown color, uh, the same glove that Kerry Wood used for his 20 strikeout game was the same glove I used growing up. I still have it and I still like it because, um, you know, it's been my glove my entire life. It's a little small now. It's a, it's a 10 and a half, but, um, you know, I'll, I'll forever keep that glove. And, you know, those two guys played a, a big part in my Cubs fandom history, I guess, if that's what you want to call it. Um, to piggyback on that kind of moving forward um, with life, uh, you had mentioned Jake Arrieta. I'll go ahead and you could even put a John Lester maybe in that conversation as well with the impact that he's had and kind of being the horse as well through, you know, all those playoff games and the season and, you know, the, the World Series games and stuff like that. Um, and I think one guy that kind of gets left in the dust but had a huge impact as well was Kyle Hendricks. Um, I don't I think he's kind of flown under the radar and he is a, I don't want to, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start getting into my, my actual top 10 here, but he reminds me of a lot of, a lot of another guy um, who's one of my top 10 um, former Cubs. And, uh, you know, I think he doesn't get enough credit for helping that team, you know, get as far as it did and, and coming back and pitching on short rest and, you know, being a big part of that team that I don't think gets a lot of recognition. So we are going to get into our top 10 now. And my number 10 is an interesting choice and a choice that, probably not a lot of people have heard of, but you had to go back in the archives for this one. It is Gabby Hartnett. Gabby Hartnett played 20 years in the big leagues, 19 of them with the Chicago Cubs. Hartnett was a catcher that hit 236 career homers in a career that spanned from 1922 to 1941. He drove in 1,179 runs, 
and was a career 297 hitter. The All-Star Game was established in 1933, and from its inception until 1938, Hartnett made six consecutive All-Star teams. He was the 1935 NL MVP, where in this season, this is pretty spectacular in 1935, he hit 344 with a 404 on base percentage. He only hit 13 homers, but he drove in 91 runs. The year before, 1934, he hit 22 homers. And in a year where he didn't win MVP, remarkably so, in 1930 with the Cubs, he hit 37 homers, drove in 122 runs. He hit 339 with a 404 on base percentage. This guy was a horse. He was somebody that played pretty much over 90 games every year with the exception of 1922, 23, and 29. But for some of those early 30s-era Cubs teams that were always competitive, especially that 32 team that went to the World Series, Hartnett was a big part of that. So one of the reasons why he makes the list as opposed to some of our other honorable mentions is just simply the fact that Gabby Hartnett did it for a long time. You know, he was actually, and I didn't want to keep rambling about honorable mentions because I gave you 15 guys in, in my mind, but him, um, a guy named Frank Chance, who I'm sure a lot of people don't know who that is, Stan Hack, those were three guys um, who just, if I had more honorable mentions, I guess those would be guys that added to that list too, uh, as well as actually my mom's favorite Cub and one of the big reasons why she's a Cubs fan, Mark Grace, who just got left off my top 10 list. But I'm going to go ahead. Um, just because Greg, you know me, I never really listen to direction and kind of just do whatever I want to do. I actually picked two people for my tanks. I couldn't decide. So I was sitting here debating for an hour, which one to pick. That is such a Josh Michelson move, by the way, for those of you who don't know, Josh, that is such a Josh Michelson move. So but, I actually, uh, have a top but Hey, I 11. appreciate it. So I actually have a top 11, but two of them, I won't go too much into detail. I'll just name them in a couple quick, you know, tidbits of information here, but my, my 10th, uh, it would be a tie between, and it's, I guess, no particular order of putting one over the other, but I have Andre Dawson, the Hawk, and Greg Maddox as my number 10. Um, Greg Maddox, I would say if you made me pick one over the other, I probably would have led uh, more, more towards Greg Maddox only because, um, you know, that 97% Hall of Fame, I think that that kind of says something. I don't know exactly what Andre Dawson's number was. Uh, actually, I mean, 77.9%. Um, was how many people voted him in. So I would say, um, you know, and he had all those dominant years with the Braves. And, you know, Andre had great years, you know, when he wasn't playing on the Cubs either. But I would put those two guys as my 10. Um, I know he's the the highest percentage uh, getting into the Hall of Fame. I know he went in as a Brave um, in 2014. But as a Cub, he went 133, 112, with a 3.61 ERA, 1,300 strikeouts. I ended up having over 3,300 for his career. Uh, 355 wins. So I think those are two pretty easy guys to put in the top 10 here. You know, I almost didn't think about Greg Maddox and I'm going to have to add him to my honorable mentions because of what he did do with the Cubs. Uh, He did start as a Cub, came back to the Cubs after all of those years with the Braves. And yeah, I left off Andre Dawson as well. So I'm going to have to add him into my honorable mention. Number nine for me on this list is somebody that I think is one of the more overlooked Cubs because he played for the Cubs for 13 seasons. In his 13 seasons with the Cubs, he hit 308. He only had 148 homers. He was not a big power guy, but he was consistently hitting above 290. And that's Mark Grace. Mark Grace was a very consistent hitter. He played in over 100 games every year from 1988 to 2002, and now his last three years were with the Arizona Diamondbacks. But Mark Grace made three all-star teams, 93, 95, and 97, and was really solid in pretty much every one of those years throughout the year. I mean, he was a longtime Cub. He was the epitome of consistency. He was a critical part of that 1998 wildcard team. And, you know, Josh, I know that Mark Grace is probably somebody that you remember growing up watching But for me, the fact that he was as consistent as he was and the amount of years that he played for the Cubs is why he lands at number nine on my list. And like I had mentioned, too, uh, with the honorable mentions, he just missed. There's there's so many great Cubs players, and I actually had him as number 10, and I was going back and forth with Dawson and Matt. It's 
it was it was driving me nuts. But I mean, not even from the hitting side. You got to look at it. He won Gold Glove for the Cubs at first base in '92, '93, '95, and '96. He was an All Star in '93, an All Star in '95, an All Star in '97. I mean, he had great years, and that was basically me growing up. My childhood, I remember playing out in the backyard, and you know, I'd always obviously be the Cubs when I was playing against my friends in the neighborhood or my grandma even. She'd go out there and, and play with me every day, but <clears throat> it was always that Cubs team with Mark Grace and Henry Rodriguez and Sammy Sosa and you know, like Jeff Blauser and Mickey Morandini, and I could go on for you know days with with those late '90s Cubs teams. But you know, Mark Grace was a was a huge part of that. Which when that's actually a perfect transition because that goes into my number nine guy, and uh, you could have made this guy higher. Um, the reason why I didn't, although don't get me wrong, with the impact he played on the Cubs in those late '90s, going back and forth with Mark McGuire, I got Sammy Sosa as number nine, and the reason why I have him at number nine versus not higher is because he's not in the Hall of Fame yet. Not saying that I don't think he belongs in the Hall of Fame because those years that he had with the Cubs were great. People suspected him of doing certain things. I'm not going to go one way or the other. Um, but I got Sammy Sosa coming in at number nine, uh, number one in, fr- in the franchise all-time in home runs, third in RBIs, fifth in war. He played in 18 or 1,811 games for the Cubs, had eight, 1,985 hits, 1,400 RBIs. You know, that was, that was a big part. I remember every game, Sammy running out of the dugout and, I'll never forget him running out with the flag that one day in right field and just getting everybody fired up. Um, unfortunately, I wasn't able to sit in the bleachers at all growing up. Um, it was always, um, you know, sitting in the in the regular stands. But once I got old enough, you know, I wish I could have sat out there for one of those years when Sammy was out in right. But, um, you know, those are memories as a kid that that I'll you know never forget. I personally think, and he's a little bit higher on my list, and we'll get to that in a few, but I personally think, if the corked bat incident doesn't happen and the steroid scandal doesn't have the bottom fall out of a lot of these late 90s power hitters like it does, that Sammy Sosa is already in the Hall of Fame and he's probably still the most beloved Cub of all time. I mean, Sammy Sosa was one of the most endearing guys to the fans of anybody. And I still remember after 9-11, Sammy Sosa taking the field, sprinting out to right field like he always did and waving the American flag running around the outfield. And, you know, for a guy from the Dominican Republic to do that, I thought was really, really special at the time. And, you know, looking at Sammy Sosa in regards to who he was in the grand scheme of the Cubs franchise, like, granted, he was not a big impact guy relative to that 03 Cubs team, but still played a big part in that team's success. So, you know, I'm going to get to Sammy Sosa a little bit later, but obviously he's got to be inside the top 10. He played most of his career with the Cubs, despite also playing with the White Sox, the Rangers, and the latter end of his career, the Baltimore Orioles. Number eight was a difficult one for me because both of the guys that I kind of had battling for this spot were really elite for stretches of years. And the reason I'm going to put this guy number eight is because he pitched in an era that pitchers were so much better than they are now. And it's not because of the ability of the pitcher. It's because of the ability of the baseball to not travel. And that's Mordecai Three Finger Brown, who played from 1903 to 1916. Mordecai Brown had some elite years with the Cubs. And granted, you see a lot of these gaudy numbers from guys that pitched in the 1900s. In 1906, he went 26-6, had a league-best 104 ERA in 277 innings of work. In 1909, he had 342 and two-thirds innings, went 27-9 with a 131 ERA. He had 32 complete games. He had stretches where he had over 27 complete games in three straight years. And then, by the way, in 1911, he won 21 games and had 13 saves, pitching 270 innings. He definitely would not have won a Cy Young Award. I mean, sorry, he definitely would have won a Cy Young Award 
if that award actually existed. But, I mean, you look at the pure numbers. He finished with 239 career wins, a career 206 ERA, pitched all but two of his seasons with the Chicago Cubs. And he just was one of those guys that if he pitches a little bit longer, he probably has a chance to win 300 games. I agree with you, Greg. Actually, it's funny that you say Mordecai Brown, three fingers as uh, his nickname. He actually got in a farming accident when he was little and lost part of two of his fingers, which was why he had such a great curveball and a a great knuckle curveball. But I actually uh, have him as my number uh, eight as well. So that's, uh, that's funny. You mentioned a lot of the stats, 1949 in the Hall of Fame. Um, you know, I wanted to put him a little bit higher. He does have two World Series wins in 07 and 08. But like you said back then, um, you know, the, the competition wasn't as strong as it may have been, you know, in the, the later coming years in baseball. And, uh, you know, he was a, a great pitcher and, you know, career 2.06 ERA, had over 3,100 innings pitched. 1,300 strikeouts. I mean, that was a, a heck of a career, especially for, for somebody back then. And I think that, you know, we actually talked about that on our Giants episode yesterday in terms of the era of what that was. And it was so much easier for pitchers to pitch back then. But I still think that you look at the numbers of a Mordecai Brown and you just, they're eye-popping. But that was an era, and I'm sure that you would agree that starting pitchers were the dominant position of the era. Like, you didn't have traditional relievers. You had guys coming back on two days rest. You had guys consistently having consecutive years of pitching over 300 innings. So the era is what speaks to it. My number seven is somebody that, in modern Cubs lore, is probably the best starting pitcher for the modern Cubs, and that's Fergie Jenkins. Fergie Jenkins had six straight years of winning at least 20 games from 1967 to 1972. Fergie won his only Cy Young award in 1971, where he went 24 and 13 with a 2.77 ERA, had 30 complete games in 39 starts and a league best 325 innings. Fergie Jenkins for his career had 284 wins, a career ERA of 3.34. Now he had some Poor years with the Texas Rangers after he left the Cubs. He came back to the Cubs in 1982 and actually had a 14 and 15 record, but a 3.15 ERA in 34 starts. And I just honestly think that when you look at the era that the guy played in and the success that he had, and the fact, by the way, that he is a Hall of Famer that Fergie Jenkins is probably the greatest Chicago Cubs starting pitcher of all time. I think you can definitely make that argument. He's number one in franchise strikeouts, over 2,000. Uh, he's number one in games started, and that was also, like you had just mentioned, um, going back to Mordecai Brown back in days when guys would pitch you know, 150 pitches and then go out and throw the very next day. Um, so with that, having that many games started, especially in the, the modern era too, that's got to say something he's third in inning pitched all time, ninth in batting average against, um, had over 2000 strikeouts with the Cubs. He pitched over 2,500 innings. So I think that's a, a great choice. And he's coming up here on my list here very shortly. Um, my next pick, and I think some people would have him higher. I think a lot of people would have said he should have gone into the hall of fame a lot sooner. Um, I know he was kind of an arrogant player and not a lot of guys liked him when he played, but um, you know, my next uh, pick coming in here is Ron Sano hall of famer, 2012. Um, A cool memory I'll actually uh, have of Ron was um, I was uh, at the game when the Cubs retired his number. So that's something that was, uh, that was cool. And obviously I wish he would have gotten to to see the Cubs uh, win a world series. I know that was something that was always near and dear to him listening to him and Pat Hughes almost my entire childhood every single night uh, on the radio. And, uh, you know, I I think it's a a well-deserving all-star in 63 through 73 every year for the Cubs. Uh, Won a gold glove 64 through 68 for the Cubs. Um, You know, a lot of, a lot of memorable moments in Cubs history. And it seemed like he was one of the the top third basemen every single year, um, you know, year in and year out during the, the time that he played. 
Yeah, Ron Santo is one of the more beloved Cubs. I think he was one of those you love him or you hate him guys. Uh, certainly one of the most homeristic broadcasters that ever lived. But I still remember he was doing a game in Arizona with Pat Hughes and they a fan down in front was bugging him and he literally on the air like yelled at the fan through the window. Could you shut up, please? Or could you sit down, please? Or something like that. But Ron Sano was so beloved because he was just that big of a personality. He is 1,000% a guy that is going to be in my top five. My number six is Cap Anson. Now, Cap Anson somebody that a lot of people don't know because of the fact that he played before the year 1900. He played 22 of his 27 big league years with the Cubs, with his first year being in 1876. He had a career 334 batting average with a 394 on base percentage. In 1884, still the dead ball era, he hit 21 homers and he drove in 102 RBI. He was elected to the Hall of Fame in 1939 by the Old Timers Committee, as it was known. Back then, he was born in Marshalltown, Iowa. He died in Chicago. He went to Notre Dame. And for somebody that I feel like you can only learn so much about by looking at the pure numbers, he put up gaudy offensive numbers for a long period of time. No, I definitely agree. He was a, a great player. I don't think a lot of guys really know who, who he was. I mean, that was a, a real early time. And he's going to be coming up here on uh, on my list, so I don't want to give out too many of my uh, little cool stats, but he was, uh, I think one of the only play. I'd have to go, I guess I have to go back and look at this. I think he's the only player on, uh, no, there's a couple other guys. Uh, he played all 21 years with the Cubs. Um, and he actually has the highest, uh, war out of any Cub by quite a bit. Um, his career war was 89.1 for all those analytics people. And the, uh, next, uh, closest and second place was Ron Sano with 68.5. So that was, quite a uh, quite a difference I know it's a different different era different different way of baseball obviously things were a lot different in the late 1800s early 1900s than they are in today's game and you know difference in, in materials and balls and and you know the way pitchers have evolved and hairs have evolved it's a it's a completely different time but um, you know I, I have him a little bit higher on my list um, but that leads into my next uh, person on my list who is uh, another guy who was uh, played a little bit, a little older guy. Um, some people may have not have, have heard of him, but um, Hack Wilson is who I put next on on my list. Um, I know he didn't play uh, every year uh, with the Cubs. He played a, a couple years um, with some other teams as well too. So uh, I know not all of his stats, but a career 307 hitter, 244 home runs, over a thousand RBIs. Um, great player, Hall of Fame in 1979. So. Um, Hack Wilson is actually the uh, what number are we on now? Six. This, yep, this is number, number six. six. I messed up with my two tens, so now I'm rewriting all my my numbers, trying to get everything in order here. But yeah, Hack Wilson comes in on my list at number six. And now looking back at these, like I could have put Ron Sano ahead of him. I could have put Sammy ahead of both of these. Like I don't even know if this was the right top ten. Now we'll keep going. Well, I'll say this: Hack Wilson is most generally known as the guy that Tom Hanks's character was based off of in a league of their own. And, you know, he probably would have been one of the greatest players of all time if he didn't have as many alcohol problems as he did. So, you know, really darn good baseball player, certainly a legacy left behind that is not as glorious as a lot of guys would have necessarily hoped for. 56 home runs in 1930. That's amazing. 100, 191 RBIs and 105 walks. That's insane. These are the types of things that are why it's amazing when you go back and you look through all of the great Cubs in history, and it's just remarkable that they had such a long period of never winning a World Series. Number five for me is Ron Santo. And Ron Santo played for 15 years, and he was with the Cubs for 14 of those years. He actually played his final year with the White Sox in 1974. Santo was a nine-time All-Star. 
and he was a career 277 hitter, but he was a good power bat. He had four straight years where he hit over 30 homers. He hit over 100 RBI four times. He led the league in walks four times. He led the league in on-base percentage two different times, and he was as high as fourth in the MVP voting back in 1967. He also had five straight years when he won a gold glove. Ron Santa was part of those late 60s, early 70s Cubs that were always competitive and just a really likable guy and somebody that kind of just stayed in Cubs lore for so many different years. And I think Ron Santa was one of the most beloved Cubs also because of his broadcasting career. But when I look at Ron Santo and I look at the power numbers and the on-base numbers, granted, the batting average, not as great as some of the other guys that I have on my list, but I just think the impact he left is why he is number five for me. Man, it's a solid choice. And like I said, I think really a lot of these guys, you could, I mean, you could make a, a case that, you know, somebody like a three fingers Brown, you could put over Fergie Jenkins, who's transitioning into my number five pick was Fergie Jenkins, and like you had mentioned, you know, you can make the argument he's the best Cubs pitcher ever. Um, You know, 167 wins, and, you know, he was a a dominant guy, you know, for many years, not even with the, you know, not all those years with the Cubs. Um, You know, a three-time All-Star with the Cubs, uh, another Hall of Fame member in 91. Those ones are always cool. I think that's kind of a weird, like, sports thing for me is I always have, like, weird connections to certain people. I mean, we all do, but – um, one cool thing for me is, is all the guys in all the years, the year I was born, that made it to the Hall of Fame. When I was out in Canton this year, you know, I made sure to go get a picture with all the guys in 91. Fergie Jenkins being a guy, 91, that was the year I was born. Um, also, another cool thing is, uh, and I guess I've seen quite a few of these now that I think about it, I saw Fergie Jenkins and Greg Maddox's number get retired actually the day after my senior prom. Uh, I went in there with my buddy and his date. And um, I got the commemorative, uh, they gave some sort of commemorative pin away. And then I got the program from that game. But um, yeah, it was cool. Greg Maddox, actually, we were sitting on the third base side. And um, for anyone that's been to Wrigley Field, if you're sitting kind of in that 200 level, you can see everyone that's walking um, along the catwalk where all the suites are at. This was prior to, to renovations at Wrigley. Um, but I remember Greg Maddox was actually in the suite with Fergie Jenkins um, right in front of where we were sitting. So they walked by us like three or four times and everyone kept going nuts. But, um, you know, another cool, I mean, I never obviously um, got to watch him pitch, but, you know, it was cool to, to be a part of that day. I know he does a lot of stuff down during spring training, um, you know, with a lot of the other retired players uh, raising money for his foundation. Um, a lot of autographs. I remember seeing him out at Sloan Park and Scottsdale Stadium, um, out at Hohokam where the A's are at, where the Cubs used to be. Um, with a lot of other former players, not just Cubs, but, um, you know, guys that that played with them and friends and, um, you know, other stars. And uh, it's cool what he's doing now, his little traveling, uh, he's got a little traveling Fergie mobile. I don't know what the, that's the correct name for it, but he's got a little traveling van that he takes everything around in that I've, I've seen parked at the facility a couple times. Man, it's amazing. The Cubs, like the Giants, which we were talking about yesterday, the Cubs do a great job of honoring their history. And a great job of making sure that their past is honored. And and one guy that I hope has his past honored by the Cubs at some point is number four on my list. And that's Sammy Sosa. Now, Sammy Sosa did not hit for the highest average. But he had some of the best power years of anybody, not just in Cubs history, but in baseball history. 98, 66 homers. 99, he followed that up with 63. Had 64 homers in 2001, had a league-leading 160 RBI. 2002, he had a league-leading 49 homers. You know, he had a career 609 homers. He played for the Cubs from 92 until 2004. He spent his last years with the Orioles in 05, a year off in 06, and then 114 games with the Rangers. He hit 21 homers with the Rangers in 2007, his last year ever playing professional baseball. And despite the fact that he lost the home run race to Mark McGuire in 1998, he still won MVP that season. And he finished second in the MVP voting in 2001. Slam and Sammy was a larger-than-life personality. If Sammy Sosa doesn't have the somewhat tarnished reputation 
that he got because of the steroid scandal, I think he potentially is number one on this list. But I'll leave number three up to you, Josh. You know, you already put Sammy down on your list. Who's your number three? Uh, we're at four, aren't we? I think that was. That's four. right. That's right. Number four. Number four. I. Uh, four. I'm losing. I'm losing track of myself here. No, no. All good. We're all. I. I screwed us all up from the beginning, doing eleven instead of ten. So I'll, I'll take the blame for that. And just to piggyback real quick, wasn't that such a great like '98? Just watching the same. I remember like they'd break in. They got the Big Mac counter on the one side, and then Sammy be playing. Are right, they're gonna break into that game on Fox and just going back and forth and. I remember they had the the McDonald's. Um, I remember what the promotion was, but McDonald's was huge at that time, promoting the two of them. And I had this plaque in my room. I remember when I was little, it was like a limited edition um, home run battle between the two of them. But you know, those were those were great times in early Josh's baseball uh, career. And to piggyback on the Sammy Sosa thing, one more real quick uh, tidbit: um, in two thousand two, I believe, or three, up in Miller Park. Um, we were up there for batting practice and, um, I'll, this is the longest home run, uh, Adam Brett Walker, who used to be with the twins and a couple other teams. He's got the longest home run I've seen in person. I don't quite know where that landed. I don't quite know where this Sammy one landed either, but I remember, uh, watching batting practice with my dad in Miller park and Sammy, they had the, I don't know if you've ever been to Miller park, but they have these back, um, these like blind, these huge blinds almost that they can open up. So the sunlight comes in, you get natural, you know, wind and stuff from the outfield. But they had those, they usually have them open because the wind would blow in from center and it'd be a pain. But for whatever reason that day, they had it open. They had the roof open. And I'll never forget, saw Sammy hit a home run through, through one of those screens, didn't bounce, cleared the screens. And they actually showed it about 20 minutes later. Someone had found it out in the staff parking lot, um, which is clear beyond the center and, and right field um, fence and at Miller Park. But that was by far the longest home run I've ever seen hit in my life. But that's, not to get off track. We'll we'll get back. Well, on let this. me add. Let me add actually one story to that. I went to a Cubs Giants game at AT and T Park in either one or two, and Sammy Sosa. There's you know the giant glove beyond, like way beyond the left field stands at AT and T Park in San Francisco. You know near the Coke bottle. Yeah, my Uber pitcher actually is a picture, a selfie of me in front of that glove. So if you ever pick me up on Uber, like that's my contact photo on there. But anyways, continue. He didn't hit the glove, but Sosa actually hit a home run that got up onto the porch where the glove rests. That's 501 feet. That's a long ways. I walked out that back way um, when I was, I just, I was, I mean, you know me, I'm a, I've been to 25 stadiums. I love going to all the different ballparks and seeing all the creative things at each of the different ballparks. But I remember just standing out. It's kind of like when you're at um, Chase Field and, Arizona and you're standing out in like left field and you're like, I can't believe Justin Upton hit a home run out here. I think that's the farthest home run hit at Chase Field, actually. Um, a game we were at, he hit like 462 feet or something, uh, something crazy, but hit it up in the, where they do all the, the dog porch now, I think is what's, what's down at Chase Field. But yeah, just these unbelievable distances that he would hit on his home runs. And like, if you go back and look at that year too, go back and look at like the, the, the distances on, on half those home runs he hit out of those 60, was it 66 68 that year um those weren't just little you know short porch 310 foot home runs he was crushing some of those baseballs josh we gotta get to your number four now we we went into a long tangent on sammy sosa long home runs and i think that's what he's best remembered for and i'm very intrigued as to see what your number four is going to look like because i feel like three through one for us are going to be very similar it just might be a dependence on the order so my number four, and I think, again, with a lot of these, like, I mean, you could make the argument, again, he played a different era, different different style of baseball. But my number four is Cap Anson, and you could have made the argument that he could have, I mean, in theory, been number one. Like I say he has the highest war. He played all 21 years with the Cubs. Not that that really makes a difference. But first in RBIs, he's 10th in stolen bases all time. You know, a career 331 hitter, 97 home runs, wasn't a huge a huge power hitter, but I don't think tons of guys are really hitting that many home runs. I know that he was um, pretty high on that list. I want to say he was 10th when I was looking at some stuff earlier because I had never really heard of this guy. But I'm going back, I'm like, how do you not put him, you know, in your top five with his numbers like this? 9,100 9, at-bats, he's got 3,000 hits, 
97 home runs, again, kind of low, 1,800 RBIs, 247 stolen bases, and a career 331 hitter. So I couldn't I couldn't not leave him out of the, the top five. And, again, you can make an argument that any of these guys, I think, you know, you could have put Sammy up in this spot. And I think, like what you said before, if the cork bat situation doesn't happen in the steroid era, and he's not – you know, found, with with that whole situation, whatever the case may be, not not speculating again. But you know, he could now all of a sudden be three or two. You could even make an argument one. You know, and I think you can make that argument with a lot of these guys, which is why that was so hard for me. So, um, yeah, he's uh, he's my number my number four. Number three for me, and this was a tough decision between him and my number two. But I got to go with Billy Williams at number three. Billy Williams was the epitome of consistency, and he was a great power bat in an era that you didn't see a ton of home runs either. He played over 160 games in eight straight seasons. So every time you looked out there, Billy Williams was there. The 1961 Rookie of the Year, he finished with 426 career homers and hit 290. His best season, more than likely, came in 1970, where he hit 322, had a career-high 42 homers, and a career-high 129 RBI, but he didn't win the MVP that year. He actually finished second. He never won the MVP, but he finished second in the MVP voting twice. Billy Williams actually finished the last two years of his career with the Oakland A's, but as a Cub, he hit 296 in 16 years with the Cubs, along with 392 of his 426 career homers. Billy Williams is one of those guys that I think gets overlooked a lot because he didn't have that same staying star power, but Billy Williams did it well and did it well for a very long time. I'm glad you picked him third because I think that you you and I just flip-flopped those two because... I went Rhino three and I went Billy two, but we're getting ahead of our, we'll get back to Billy or to that in a second. But just one quick point with Billy, you had mentioned how he was out there every year. If you go back and look at games played in 1960, we'll just go back to 1963. Cause that seems to be the first year where it was real low in 63. He played 161 games, which was fourth in the NL 64, 162, which was second. And then in 65, 66, 68, 69 and 70 he played at least 161 games in all of those years and he was first in the nl in games played in each one of those seasons which is crazy imagine imagine going to billy williams and telling him that he's got to take every second day off for load management like some of these players are doing now yeah he would not have approved of that by any stretch (laughs) so again then to piggyback on there so my number three uh is ryan sandberg who I feel like I got a story for all these these guys, but I mean that's what happens I guess when you're a lifelong Cubs fan. But actually, one of my coolest um, autograph stories I was with my grandpa, and this is when the Cubs were still at Hoho Cam um, in Mesa before they moved to Sloan Park, and they're playing the Brewers. And this was my first time in Arizona, and I was doing a um, a project for a college class that I was taking, um, which is funny because it's now basically all the stuff I do now and I have done the last couple of years, but I went and was like comparing different prices and ticket prices and food prices and what I liked and didn't like about all the different stadiums, put together this whole proposal. Um, But anyways, that game ended up getting rained out. But I don't know if you've ever been to Hohokam, but the, I guess the grandstand area is underneath. So you have to kind of walk down these tunnels. Um, Very unlike Maluka Field where it's all level, but you're kind of walking, you're, you're kind of underneath down behind and so everyone's jam-packed and there are tons of people. It's hot. Everyone's wet. You know, it's spring training. It's 90 degrees out still in Arizona. And we were already all wet anyways. And um, I just got into program and I was kind of sitting there reading it underneath my poncho that I had that I had, had. And um, I'm like, you know what? I'm just going to go out there and sit in the stands because everyone's crammed underneath here. This isn't fun. I said, Grandpa, I'll be back in a little bit. So I walk out there. I go and I sit down by the Cubs dugout. I'm sitting down there and somebody's talking on the phone, but I can't tell who it is. Um, so I'm standing on there for maybe sitting down there for 10 minutes, 20 minutes or so. And finally this guy comes walking over and he's like, Hey kid, what are you doing? And I'm like, uh, just 
kind of sitting here hanging out, waiting for the rain to stop. And he goes, I think the, I think the game's going to get canceled. Lo and behold, Ryan Sandberg. So he comes over, and I'm like, I look down, and on my program, it was the top six Cubs greats or whatever. And I'm like, hey, Mr. Sandberg, you mind signing my program for me real quick? Yeah, yeah, no problem. Comes over and talks to me. I'm like, this is actually a funny story. My first ever game at Wrigley Field, um, you were the second autograph I've ever gotten in my life. I said, you're a big reason why I'm a Cubs fan and you know why I continue to keep going to baseball and why I love baseball and why I'm involved with baseball so much. And I ended up sitting and talking to him for like 20 minutes. He goes, if you're crazy enough to sit out here in the rain, as long as I'm not getting wet, I'll sit here and talk to you. So um, he's my number three. And I guess more uh, – more on the personal side with a lot of these guys, you know, that's why I think it was so hard for me to pick a top 10 because I mean, it, it killed me to leave my almost my favorite cup of all time. Chris Bryant off the top 10 list because of the MVP. He got you a world series where none of these other guys did. But as you had mentioned before with him and Rizzo, maybe they move into the top 10, you know, once their playing time's done, you just don't know um, right now when they're, you know, still in the midst and in the prime of their career. But a um, couple quick things on, on Sandberg fourth all-time in stolen bases uh, with 344 in franchise history. He's fifth in total bases, sixth in extra base hits. Another Hall of Fame guy, 2005, um, actually was at the game where they retired his number as well, which is, this is starting to, I guess I was just had all the retired numbers except for Billy Williams, which was in like the, the late 80s. But um, great defensive uh, player as well, too. Very underrated defensive guy. Um, you know, career 285 average. Still, still had a, a good career. Great guy, great baseball guy, and um, you know, a great, great guy in Cubs history. So, if Rhino is your number three, he is my number two. You kind of did a lot of the explaining for me. One of the reasons why I put Sandberg ahead of Billy Williams is because he did so much of his elite work as a second baseman, as not a premium offensive position. And the thing about him is that he just seemed to get better throughout his career in terms of his power numbers. And he made consecutive all-star games from 1984 to 1993. And I think one of the most impressive things is that he still came back after missing a year and a half due to injury. He comes back and he still plays 150 games in 1996 and then hits 264 in his final season in 1997 played all of his career with the Cubs, won the MVP in 1984, where he led the league with 19 triples. You know, Sandberg was just a solid player, a guy that endeared himself to a lot of Cubs fans and, you know, just simply put, was a great defensive second baseman. You know, he won gold gloves in eight consecutive seasons. And to me, actually, let me check that. My math might be terrible. No, nope, I was right. You're right. It was nine consecutive seasons, nine consecutive seasons that he got the gold glove. And, you know, it's such a tough one in terms of, you know, him and Billy Williams. But, you know, just the fact that he was a second baseman doing what he did, having the impact that he did defensively. And, you know, Sandberg stole a lot of bases as well. I mean, he had five different years where he stole at least 30 bases granted a lot earlier in his career. And Josh, here's something that you might be interested in and maybe something you did or did not know. And you knowing me and where I've been and a place that you got to go to once, guess where Ryan Sandberg started his career? One of the, It's got to be one of the Pioneer League teams. He was part of the inaugural 1978 Helena Phillies. I did not know that. That's a, that's a fun little tidbit of information, a little Pioneer League tidbit of information. Here's the most amazing thing. In 56 games in the 1978 Pioneer League, you know how many homers he hit? One. One homer. That's crazy. But he still hit 311. He still had a non-base of 390. Just simply put, Unreal. And that is why he is my number two, and I assume Billy Williams is your number two, and, and give me your explanation on that. He is, but I guess now looking back on it again, I guess I could have flip-flopped these, but I guess I'm glad that we uh, we picked him differently because it gives us something to sit and debate and talk about. But going back real quick on Sandberg, 
I mean, just some of these other stats too. I mean, going back, you look in from 92 to, well, besides 88, um, but 85 through 92, he was first, 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 third, and fourth in runs. I mean, in 90, 89, he had 104 runs, 90 at 116, first in the league both of those years. He won a silver slugger um, two, four, six, seven times. Uh, you mentioned all the gold gloves, all the all-star. I mean, he made an all-star appearance every year from 84 to 93, um, ranked in the top 20 in most statistical categories each of those years, ended with 282 home runs for his career. So, you know, a great career. Again, you, you mentioned a lot of this stuff with Billy Williams. You can make an argument that, you know, either one of these guys could have been two or three. And, you know, I think that we can both agree that, and I, I got to imagine because you haven't mentioned him yet, that we've had the same number one. But I think we can both come to the agreement that one through three, however you look at it, those are the top three Cubs of all time. So let's talk about number one together because I'm pretty sure that we have the same number one. It's Mr. Cub, Ernie Banks. the Two-time MVP, 512 career homers. He had four straight seasons of over 40 homers from 1957 until 1960. For the first part of his career, he was a shortstop and then transitioned to being a first baseman. He was an 11-time All-Star and somebody that was just so endearing to the fans and was one of the elite players in an era where the Cubs were never very good, at least until the end of his career, when they started to get good at the end of the 60s. So, you know, to me, just knowing how good of a guy Ernie Banks was, how prodigious of a power hitter he was, and really, when you talk about the racial divide and, you know, baseball's color barrier that got broken many years earlier by Jackie Robinson, but he was probably the first elite African-American athlete in Chicago. I would agree with that. And how do you not put Mr. Cub as number one? I feel like you you couldn't put him. I mean, you don't get that nickname for no reason. And like you had just mentioned, I mean, I, I think that during that time, he, he, I mean, he was, he was your Michael Jordan. He was your LeBron James. He was your, you know, your Mike Trout now. And, you know, I think that you're, you hit it right on the head. I mean, he was the, the main guy and, I think, uh, you know, a, a big um, fan favorite, not only in Chicago, but throughout the entire league. Um, it's always cool because uh, you always see that that legendary uh, Ernie Banks uh, home run clip. And that was actually uh, on my birthday, not on my, my actual birthday, but on May 12th. Uh, so that's something cool um, from, a, uh, from an Ernie Banks standpoint. And also, too, um, I have a Ernie Banks autograph. You might like this. You're a golf guy. So my uncle or my old uncle, former uncle, that's, I guess, is that, is that something when your aunt and uncle get divorced? Is that your for, is that former uncle, ex-uncle? Is he still your uncle? How does that? I think he's still your uncle. I think he's still your uncle. I haven't talked to him in a while, but if he's listening for whatever weird reason, I appreciate it again. But anyways, he used to work at a golf course. He's a superintendent at a golf course and Ernie Banks was over there one day and he called and I know we, tr I tried to get out there because I'm like, oh, that's awesome because, you know, he's in charge. And for whatever reason, he didn't want to be bugged. He kind of did his own thing or whatever. But I have at my house, um, I have a, a Cubs book or whatever with the top, you know, 10 guys at that time. But I have a form, a sign-in sheet from the golf course that day uh, with, from Ernie Banks' autograph. And then on the, um, the group he was playing with, he put Mr. Cub on there. So that's something that's, uh, that'll always be cool to me. Uh, and, uh, another little story from uh, Josh's past in the, in the Cubs realm. A great story, and it's not my past. It's actually my dad's past, and shout out to you, Dad, if you're listening. I guarantee he's not because he doesn't really know what a podcast is. Uh, he barely listens to news radio as it is. But uh, he tells this story. He's working in the golf shop at a private club on the North Shore, and a buddy of his calls. I don't remember which golf course it is. He's like, hey, can you get out of work early? And he's like, I'm not sure if I can. Uh, why? He's like, I got a tea time here at blah, blah, blah golf course and Ernie Banks is in it. And he's like, so wait a minute. You're telling me that I can come and play with Ernie Banks if I get down there in two hours. And he's like, yeah, you can. So somehow he found a way out of work. He gets down there and he plays with Ernie Banks. And 
my dad, who's only about 5'9", 5'10", probably at his highest, they're on this par five, and he hits this green in two. Granted, he's playing with Ernie Banks, who is one of the more powerful guys of all time. And Ernie Banks just says, little guy, you hit the ball pretty far, don't you? That's hilarious. That's awesome, though. That's a story that, you know, you'll and, and it's just little things like that. I mean, I could go into stories upon stories of odd little crazy things that have happened throughout my sports career and, you know, athletes that you've met and, you know, going to Cubs games. And, and now it's to the point where, you know, we're working with so many teams and with the Royals. And now I've really become a huge fan of them because you have to root for these guys that, you know, you've come to know personally and that have come through there. And, you know, especially from the the younger standpoint too, it's like, you know, you get a fan that comes out to a game here in Idaho Falls that sees a Salvador Perez or an Eric Hosmer play, you know, and I know a lot of people who don't like sports who have had an interaction with somebody good or bad. Um, but they're a fan of that team now, or they're a fan of, you know, that player and follow him, you know, like I said, with my mom, I mean, she, she played softball and stuff, but I don't think she was a huge, huge, like watch everyday baseball fan, but she liked Mark Grace. My dad was a big Cubs fan. My Nana B, um, before she passed away was a huge Cubs fan. Um, I'm glad that she got to see a world series because she went, you know, 80, 85 plus years without seeing I mean, she didn't see a World Series her entire life before a year before she passed away. And, you know, I th- we thought we had a bad, you know, going 25 or 26 years without seeing a, a World Series. I can only imagine, you know, going going 80 years without seeing a World Series. So um, I think a lot of these people, and, and that's awesome, an awesome story that, you know, I'm sure he tells all the time. And, you know, that's a, a big reason why sports are a big part of everyone's life, because you have, a, have an incident like this, or you have a story like this that'll stick with you forever. And, you know, it, it's, it's cool. And I'm sure people that aren't even as big into sports as we are, it's like, Hey, you know, I, I know who Ernie Banks is. It's awesome that you got to play golf with him and, you know, spend an afternoon and, and talk with them and, and BS with them. And I'm sure he, he's got some other stories that are pretty cool that Ernie told throughout the, the day as well. The thing to me, and this is where I'll end this, about Ernie Banks, and then we'll wrap up this episode because we've gone almost an hour at this point. My dad gushes over Ernie Banks, and he's a White Sox fan. Like, that's the that's the impact that Ernie Banks had. My dad is not a Cubs fan. He loves Ernie Banks. That tells you all that you need to know. Yeah, yeah, I know that, you know, you're a, a big Sox fan too, and, you know, I, I don't, I mean, I can't really say, I mean, I don't think I've really met any White Sox guys that have stood out like that. I mean, granted, I haven't met tons of, of former White Sox players, but, you know, especially with the rivalries in sports and the rivalry in Chicago, you know, that's kind of big coming from a White Sox fan, you know, having that much. And that goes to show you what kind of guy Ernie was, you know, that friendly guy that it doesn't matter which team you like. And, you know, and and I guess I can make a reference to that when I worked for the Cardinals. I'm, you know, my whole family's Bears fans. It was kind of, you know, born and raised to, to dislike the Packers. But, you know, when I met Aaron Rodgers down in uh, Arizona, I was working for the Cardinals. One of the coolest guys I met, just real chill guy, was personable, sat and talked to you. Um, you know, I, I have a hatred for the Packers, but, you know, it was, he was a cool guy. And so I get where your dad was coming from. That's awesome that people are able to make that connection in, in sports. Josh Michelson, appreciate the time. Thanks for coming on the show. Greg, I appreciate you finally having me. And if you want to talk some more Cubs or hear some more uh, Cubs stories, I'd be more than I'm, I'm sad I didn't get to tell my Billy Williams one, but I guess that might be for another uh, another podcast. So we thank you all for listening to our top 10 Cubs of all time, or in Josh's case, his top 10, 11 and change. Our next top 10 list, we will be doing the top 10. Who do you think I'm going with next, Josh? American League or National League? We're going National League here. Um, I'm going to go with the Atlanta Braves. We are actually going to be going with the Los Angeles Dodgers. So our next episode, we're going to be doing our top 10 Los Angeles Dodgers. That will be debuting tomorrow here on MLB Morning Coffee. If you want to go check out me and Mark Rivera's top 10 San Francisco Giants, We will have that ready for you. Actually, that's already ready. You can go back and listen to that already. I've gotten some responses on that 
So please go back and listen to that. Make sure you write a review, leave a rating, and subscribe. If we have any other news of sort, we'll do a special episode of that. But we're going to continue these top 30s while we have the time. And that is it for today. Have a great rest of your day. Stay safe, and we'll catch you in the AM.